0: Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Everyone have all their Christmas shopping done? (laughs) Still got a few more hours? That's good. Yeah. So we will uh, be continuing our study in Galatians. Uh, We'll be in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Um, I just want to say as far as my family is concerned it is our greatest gift is to worship the Lord with all of you we love you guys um, you guys, some of you I don't know I still love you <laughs> but um, it's been a pleasure just to grow in Christ with this church and to see the, the work of the Spirit um, just growing all of us together and so from my family to yours we love you guys I would invite you guys all over for Christmas, but I'm sure you're busy. <laughs> I don't want to... <laughs> we're not. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not. Well, my wife's not in here, so she'll be surprised. It's a good, good Christmas gift. So, as we're moving on in this epistle to the Galatians, it's been called the Great Charter of Christian Living throughout history. It's Paul's Manifesto of Justification by Faith, And it's the liberty um, that's found in Christ alone that it produces. And So Paul directs this great charter of Christian freedom to the Galatians who are willing to give up that liberty in Christ. Um, And certain Jewish legalists are influencing them. And they're demonstrating not only in their words and in their actions that Christ's work was not enough to justify them. They're teaching a gospel contrary to the one that they received from Paul. And Paul writes in Galatians to refute the false gospel of works and to demonstrate the superiority of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. In Galatians uh, 1 through 8, Paul doubles down in our text from that. He says in Galatians 1 through 8, but even if we, the pillars of the faith, or Paul himself, Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so this morning, Paul takes a minute to inform the Galatians about his opposition to Peter. But what Paul makes clear here is that the gospel is to be received in word, absolutely, but it is also to be lived out in the life of a believer. The gospel is not just about doctrine, it is also about your conduct. And so when I remember when I first started reading this, because of my sinful heart, you read Paul opposes Peter. The, Ooh, man, fight, right? <laughs> but as yeah, but as we work through this text this morning, we see Paul's love for Peter, Paul's love for the Galatians, and Paul's love for Christ. Listen to the opening words of Paul to the Thessalonians speaking about their their conduct. In First Thessalonians 1, 2 through 8, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. So Paul addresses the conduct of the Thessalonians that their works, their labors of love is what was being reported throughout all of Macedonia, all of Achaia. And so our conduct is is important. On November fifteenth, two 2023, a man named Hans Schmidt was shot in the head while street preaching in Glendale, Arizona corner 51st Avenue in Peoria. Down the street from where my mom lives, actually. He was on the street promoting a church service that evening and inviting people to come and hear the good news. I went on the church's website, and they are praying for a miracle. He's still alive, although he's in critical condition. Um, But what if I told you that that church is Pentecostal? that they believe that speaking in tongues is the evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Well, I don't know about you, but kind of made me uncomfortable. But does that make Hans any lesser of a Christian than us? I only bring that up because here's a fellow believer... Out on the street calling sinners to Christ, yet his doctrine, what he believes is true about tongues, differs with ours. Yet I'd venture to say that his conduct for the gospel also differs from some of ours. Remember, the gospel is not only about doctrine, it is about conduct. I remember watching the movie Torture for Christ. Has anyone ever seen that one? It's about Richard Wormbrand. Uh, that's about his life. And there's a line in that movie that struck me. Wormbrand was laboring in a freezing cold prison camp for Christians. And he was with another Christian brother. And the brother said to Wormbrand, It must be Saturday. And Wormbrand asked, How do you know? And he said, Because they are beating the Adventists. So when the unbelieving world sees Christians, what do they see? I'll tell you what they see. They see our conduct. The way you live and act. Not your doctrine. Only that you claim Christ as your Savior. So we must ask ourselves, does the way we live declare His glory among the nations and His marvelous works among all peoples? Paul's heart, Paul's conviction here is that he refuses to let the believer's conduct that is at a step with the truth of the gospel continue unaddressed. This text this morning is not about Paul confronting Peter, although that's part of it. It's not about the hypocrisy that even led Barnabas astray, although that's part of it. Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians to relate the rebuke he's giving them to the rebuke he gave to Peter. Here's Paul in the middle of both groups. He's saying there are no Jewish Christians that need to keep the ceremonial law and there's no Gentile Christians that need to become Jews. Both of you, your conduct is out of step with the truth of the gospel. And I believe Paul's heart is that there are no lesser Christians. There are only Christians. <coughs> is that your heart? So, I'm going to read the text. We're going to go through it. And I'll pray. And then we'll start. Okay. Verse 11. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Our Father, you are full of grace and mercy and long-suffering. We want to... Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. For the salvation that you've given us. Father, help us this morning to see that your truth, the gospel, is not only for the Jews, the Gentiles, Lord. It goes out to all those that you have chosen. Father, help us this morning to glorify you to see the truth of Paul's heart for sinners and his love for the liberty found in Christ alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Galatians 2, 11-14, Paul asserts three tragic consequences that will happen if your conduct is not in step with the truth of the Gospel. The first consequence is you will stand Condemned. You'll we'll stand condemned. Verse 11 But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Cephas, another name for Peter, shook hands with Paul down in Jerusalem with the right hand of fellowship in verse 9. Then Peter, the Jerusalem crowd's favorite apostle, came up to Antioch and became the Judaizers' favorite apostle. I believe this incident took place before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, during the time of Acts 11. But now we see Paul opposing or resisting the actions of Cephas and Antioch. Remember, Paul is declaring his true apostleship as one that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not from man. Paul clearly said in Galatians 1:18, "If we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel," Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so here Paul tells the Galatians, I practice what I preach. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are infected with legalism, just like the Gentile Christians in Antioch are being infected with legalism. And here's Paul again in the middle of both groups. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Everyone is one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 he says he opposed Peter to his face. The sense of this phrase, to his face, denotes the openness or visibility of this, that it was done publicly in front of everyone that was there. Peter sinned publicly, so Paul rebukes publicly. Like I said before, it's, it's easy to read these words in like a harsh tone here. But I believe Paul speaking firmly, but out of love for his brother. And today, the postmodern church looks at this story and Paul's actions, and they, they freeze up, they gasp. They're like, oh, that's not kind. That's not nice. How could Paul do that? And they say, well, wait, that was 2,000 years ago. We're a lot more civilized now than then. We don't act like that anymore. But listen to Proverbs 27, 5-6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But in this postmodern Christian worldview, they say, eh, it's better to be indifferent. Even hyper Calvinists say, they've heard the good news. God will save whom He will save, with or without us. I don't know if that's how they sound, but no need to correct them. But think right now do you know of someone, a professing believer, that is living in sin. Maybe they're backsliding. Maybe you know. Of, that they're living with a hypocritical heart. Do you love them? How long will you wait before you warn them? How long will you allow this brother or sister. To cast lots for his own soul? One commentator writes. Spiritual cowardice is not only weakness. But wickedness. Another writes, before Christ, there is no neutral ground. But the goal of this confrontation by Paul is reconciliation. Not just between Paul and Peter, but between Peter, the Galatians, and God. What could be more loving than that? Listen to the words of our Savior in Luke 17.3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Later, Paul will write in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that that the rest may stand in fear. Later in Galatians, Paul writes, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Galatians 6.1 in Hebrews 3.13, the preacher says to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then Paul again to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now Luke he doesn't record this confrontation in Acts and Paul never mentions Peter's repentance. But if we look at the Bible, we see that Peter loved and respected Paul and that Peter knew he was out of step. He must have repented for two reasons. First, his last words in 2 Peter 3:15 through 18 and at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. In 2 Peter 3, 15-16a, he writes and count the patience of our lord as salvation just as our beloved brother paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters and in acts 15 paul and barnabas go to jerusalem to discuss this legalism of the jewish law and the freedom from it for gentiles and in acts 157 Luke writes, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And then in verse 19, Paul continues, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now the suggestion to abstain from these things Uh, was not a salvation issue, but was suggested in order to help the Gentile converts not to put a stumbling block in the path of the Jews. These four restrictions involve practical, ethical, and moral issues that would offend Jewish believers. That doesn't make them lesser Christians either. Listen to the wise words of Paul in Romans 14, 5-8. He says, Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Do not for the sake of food, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. I think when Paul wrote Romans 14, he may have had this incident in mind. And maybe the words of Jesus in Mark 7. Right? It's not what goes into the body that defiles us. It's what comes out. And what comes out is from the heart. And so for the sake of food, don't destroy the work of God. Because if you do, you stand condemned. And Peter stood condemned. Not that his salvation was in jeopardy, but that this condemnation was brought on by himself. It is a condemnation from within, rooted in a heart of hypocrisy. The Greek word for this condemnation here is used differently than it is in the rest of the Bible. Except for, for, sorry, except for 1 John. Um, and they all have to do with the heart. The gospel is to be spoken and proclaimed to the nations but it's also to be lived out in the life of a believer in view of others who look on curiously. And if we live in the same way as the world does without love and without Christ then we too stand condemned. So Christ died so that Jews and Gentiles and all people could be saved. And so then how should we live to avoid conduct from a heart of hypocrisy that condemns us? Let's look at 1 John and how he uses this word condemn. In 1 John 3:18 1 John 3, 18, John writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before Him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God Your heart doesn't condemn you. And you can have confidence in the promises of God that they apply to you. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Paul opposed Peter because he stood condemned, but Christ didn't stand condemned. He hung condemned from a cross so that on that great day you can stand confident in the grace of God. And so then we must make sure that we don't stand condemned. Rather, we stand firm in the truths of the gospel. Now, this isn't a, a physical standing straight up rigid and stiff. This is a relentless, unmovable faith in the Lord. In Philippians 4.1, Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. And in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16.13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. By standing firm, either you will draw others to the love of Christ or they will shrink back from you and separate themselves from Christ. In Luke six twenty two through 23 Luke writes, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did it to the prophets. And so speaking of shrinking back, that brings us to the next consequence of your conduct not being in step with the truths of the gospel you will shrink back in fear. You will shrink back in fear. Verse 12. He writes, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. These sanctimonious Christians from Jerusalem came and caused Peter to draw back and separate himself from the Christians in Antioch. Some people read this and they come to the conclusion that it was fear of man that drove Peter to hypocrisy. That fear caused hypocrisy. But the Bible says that hypocrisy comes from within, from the heart. And I believe it was Peter's hypocritical heart that caused him to fear man. Jeremiah seventeen nine, familiar verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Hosea 10:2, their heart is false. Now they must bear the guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. And after declaring that all foods are clean, Jesus says in Mark 7, 21-23, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness all these evil things come from within and they defile a person the sin of hypocrisy comes from the sinful heart of man so who are these men from James spoken of here one commentator says it's not at all clear just what the relationship was between these men and James were they actually sent by him or was that only their claim in any case They were Judean Christians who did not have to deal with a strong Gentile presence day in and day out. And so they failed to understand the situation in Antioch. They would have naturally interpreted Peter's behavior as a denial of their Jewish identity and maybe even some form of apostasy. And they may have come from James, but it doesn't mean that James endorsed their behavior. They may have simply been Jews that came from his church. In the early church, They had agape feasts where believers would gather together and share a meal. And many of them being poor, everyone would gather their resources and contribute to a big potluck dinner. Kind of like Wednesday nights here at GBC. But Peter was feasting with these Gentiles in Antioch. And I'm not sure what was on the menu. Maybe bacon? (laughs) Shrimp? Bacon-wrapped shrimp? Maybe. But why did Peter have this freedom? First, let's look at God's use use of the dietary laws. They were used to separate the Israelites, if you remember, from the Gentiles. The laws reminded Israel that they were set apart, that they were special in the eyes of Yahweh. The Israelites are symbolically identified with clean food, while the Gentiles are identified with unclean food. And Jesus bridges the distinction between clean and unclean by healing the unclean in the New Testament. In this way, he metaphorically opens up the church to both Israelite and Gentile. In Mark 7, 18-19, and Matthew 15, 16-17, Jesus clarifies that the food eaten by a person cannot defile that person. Only the sins coming out of the person can defile them. In this way, Jesus takes the first step in showing that the abolition of the dietary laws opens the doors of the church and Christian fellowship to all nations. The New Testament goes on to use dietary laws as symbolisms separating the Jews from the Gentiles. In Acts 10, 9-16, Peter has a vision that he should kill and eat unclean animals. And the literal meaning is that the dietary laws are nullified. The symbolism is that clean animals are the Israelites, while the unclean animals are Gentiles. As such, Peter is metaphorically conveying that there should no longer be separation between Israelites and Gentiles. Both should be allowed into the church and are accepted by God. In Acts 10.15, God reveals to Peter that nothing was to be considered common that God has made clean. And in verse 28, Peter tells Cornelius, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so in Acts 11, 1-3, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with with them, which he did. He ate non-kosher food with uncircumcised men. And this interaction should remind you of Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes in Luke 15.2. Luke writes, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I remember reading that and thinking man, maybe I need to go eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. That's good conduct. But just in case you're wondering we're not Jesus in that story. We are the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners. But isn't it strange to see this bold apostle Peter in our text here shrinking back to his old self Fear of man caused Peter to deny Christ three times, and here in our text he denies him again. He drew back. It literally means to shrink, like the ugly Walmart sweater you got for Christmas <laughs> after you wash and dry it. This Peter, who proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ of God in Luke 9, he disappears. He cuts off fellowship with the Gentiles as fast as he cut off Malchus's ear in the garden. You know, my son, he loves to dance. But he doesn't think anyone knows that. And so, one time, he's in, the, he's in the bathroom, and the door's cracked, and he's in the mirror, dancing, singing in the hairbrush. Not mine. So I saw his little silhouette, and I opened the door, and he's like, ah! he gasps, and he covers his face, and he runs out of the room, you know, embarrassed. In the same way, Christian, will you shrink back tomorrow when your unbelieving family members sit down at the dinner table for Christmas dinner? Will you preach Christ or will you cover your face? Will you tell them about the freedom from slavery to sin and the works that God offers them in the blood of His Son? Or are you indifferent about their life in Christ? Will you tell them that the gifts under the tree point to the greatest gift under the sun? The son of God, born this Christmas day. Will you allow the fear of man to infect your heart with hypocrisy and deny Christ and kill the joy that you've been given in Christ? You see, that's how we avoid conduct from a hypocritical heart that fears man. We fan the flame of joy that we've been given in Christ. And how we do that is by praising Him. Psalm 146 is an amazing psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When this breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down the lord loves the righteous the lord watches over the sojourners he upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin the lord will reign forever your god o zion to all generations praise the lord you can't fear man from a hypocritical heart if your heart is full of praise and joy to the lord Faith and fear cannot coexist in your heart. So then how do you avoid this conduct that causes you to fear man? You, flam, you fan the flame of joy. Remember Jesus. And His work will lead you to the joy that you need. In Hebrews 12, 1-2, which Pastor Bart will get in about five years. <laughs> Therefore, Can you face the ridicule of man, the persecution from man, the hate from man, knowing that your Savior has set before you joy? Will you endure your cross? Are you counting the days until your homecoming? Why not? Friends, Christ is your greatest joy. (laughs) Set your heart on him and let him lead you in the everlasting way. Speaking of leading, that brings us to the final consequence of not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. Is that you will lead others astray. In verse 13 it says, And the rest of the Jews (coughs) acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the rest of the Jews, the Christians that were freed from the bondage of the Mosaic law, all of them that were with Peter, acted like Peter. They shrank back. "'Separated themselves from the Gentiles with him. And "'Even Barnabas was led astray. "'Barnabas. "'Remember Barnabas, son of encouragement? "'In Acts 11, 22-24, to to "'the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, "'and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. "'When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, "'and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, "'with steadfast purpose.' For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas, the one who brought Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem, the one that said, Saul, he's with me. Saul's preaching Jesus boldly, I'll vouch for him. He gets led astray. You know, we used to own an RV. And uh, one time we were going on a trip, and my father-in-law had an RV, or has an RV. And we were following him. We we're going to go up to Northern California. This is them, by the way. We we're going to go to Northern California, and then we we're going to go over the mountains and go to Nevada to see my sister-in-law. And I'm following him, right? And but Google Maps says take a right. But we take a left. So I'm like, okay, you know, it's all right. Following my dear father-in-law. And we keep going, and all of a sudden, huge snowstorm on the mountain, right? And all the roads are closed. There's, I don't know, six feet tall snow banks. And we're in RVs, right? And they're not, it's hard to turn around. And so come to find out, Right. You guys probably know this, the Google Maps updates real time, road closures, things like that. But not the ones that come factory in RVs, right? And so eventually, though, after hours of driving, turning around, we used Google Maps and it got us through some narrow roads and we went through some dirt roads and avalanche. An avalanche, yeah, yeah, yes we did. And through some mountain communities with some weird looking sheep and cows. But. Goat trails. Goat trails. But we eventually made it to Nevada, right? With a great story. In the same way Barnabas was led astray because he thought the Jews knew the way, he trusted their outdated map to justification. The problem with that is the way had been updated. Christ came providing a new way, the only way. The only truth. The only life. The only way to the Father is through Him. And Paul is telling the Galatians, Jesus is the only way. He's saying, remember, I'm no man pleaser. That even when all the Jews and Peter and Barnabas acted hypocritically, when they strayed, I stayed. That's what Paul is telling the Galatians. And let us stray Barnabas was, simply means deceived. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincer- insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the warnings from Paul here describe how such apostasy comes about. People begin to listen to false teaching and heeding this teaching shipwrecks their faith. Apostates are turned away from Christ because they are turned away from His Word. They forsake His Word in order to listen to the spirit of this age, which is demonic. So, not only can you be led away or led astray by false teachers, but when believers you respect and trust turn away from the true gospel, it can also lead you astray. But for some of you, you are the one. With hypocrisy in your heart. We must be cautious, friends, because we can lead others astray as well, causing their hearts and their minds to abandon Christ Himself in a sea of confusion. So then, how should we live so that our conduct from hypocrisy doesn't allow or doesn't infect your heart and cause confusion for others as we don't allow hypocrisy in our hearts? to lead others astray. Instead, we allow the Holy Spirit to help us rescue those that have been led astray. Both James, the brother of Jesus, who the certain men came from, in verse 12, and Peter, who feared them, both always remembered this interaction with Paul here. I believe they saw and understood Paul's love for both of them. Listen to the last words of James. James 5 19 through 20 he says my brothers if anyone among you wanders goes astray from the truth and someone brings him back let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins that's exactly what Paul did and what covers a multitude of sins Peter, the great apostle, who was opposed by Paul, says that love does. Quoting Proverbs 10, 12, and 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter writes, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter knew Paul loved him. And who is love? God is love, right? 1 John 4. Love covers a multitude of sins, and since Genesis 3.20, God has been covering sin. We finally arrived at the main point of this message by Paul. He says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? (coughs) This is simply... Paul saying, Peter, you're living as though you're free. And now you're expecting the Gentiles to live as though they're not. You know, we had a lot of fog this weekend. It's hard to see. But living here in Kansas, there wasn't too many accidents around here, right? I looked up uh, the largest pileup in history was in Brazil. It was 300 vehicles. It says a dense fog was once again the culprit for the largest car pileup in history, occurring at the Rodovia dos Emigrantes highway in Sao Paulo, Brazil. With over 300 vehicles crashing into one another, the accident stretched along for over one mile with many vehicles also catching fire. You see, Peter, he was in a fog of hypocrisy. And if one of the pillars of the faith goes head on into a fog of hypocrisy, eventually he will crash and then everyone who is following behind him will crash as well. But this pile-up won't be of cars, but of souls wrecked from imitating Peter's conduct from a heart of hypocrisy. And Paul has a lot to say about imitation, because in the early church, they didn't have the New Testament. He hadn't written it yet. So in order to follow, I mean, they had the Old Testament, but in order to follow Christ, they must follow the example of men and women who followed Christ by imitating them. In 1 Corinthians 11:1, Paul says, "Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ." And so how does Paul say to be imitators of Christ? There's many ways. But in Ephesians 5, 1-2, I think sums this up. In Ephesians 5, 1-2, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says in, in order to imitate God, you must walk in love. And how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The measure and model of our love for others is Christ's love for us. Us. Those that believe. Friend, if you have not turned from your own works, your legalistic worldview, and faith in Jesus plus something else, Friends, you are not one of us. You are out of step with us and with Christ. You see, this passage doesn't mean merely that Christ died for you, but he died instead of you. And this is the gospel, friends. It's more than doctrine. It's even more than our conduct. It's the promise that your justification in Christ alone is enough. Your faith alone in that is enough. And so you can rest, weary sojourner, but keep your conduct in step with the truth of the gospel and look up to the joy set before you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we're so grateful. Lord, for your love and your kindness that you show to us. We see here, Lord, that Christ's blood covers all sin. That there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to warrant this great gift. It's a gift, perfectly wrapped, not under a tree but presented on the cross where Christ breathed his last for us Lord I pray for every heart in here Lord that they have received this gift from you that they look forward to eternity with you and we are all just counting the days to where we can be with you in glory. Lord, help our conduct. Help us to not defame your holy name. Help us this weekend as we recognize the birth of our Savior, Lord, and as we are with unbelieving family members, some of us, that we would be bold in our proclamation of the truth. For your glory alone that you may receive the reward of your suffering. And for those when the families gathered and they're all believers, would you help us to rejoice? Would you help our joy not to be in gifts or food or anything here, but that our joy would be for what is, you have set before us, Christ, our lion waiting for us, Father, we thank you for this day. May you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that you are due this Christmas Eve. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.